0: welcome to Always Take Notes.
1: A message from our sponsor, Arvon. Do you have a story in you, or want to test the waters of writing poetry or non-fiction? Maybe you already write and write well, but would like to try a new form or genre, pick up some new tricks.
0: Enter Arvon. Arvon run a yearly programme of in-person and online events, from five-day residential writing weeks that take place at one of their three writing houses, to pay what you can online events and online masterclasses that delve deep into craft over the course of two hours. Their courses cover everything from commercial, genre, and experimental fiction, to poetry, screenwriting, and even songwriting.
1: They've been running creative writing courses up and down the UK since 1968. In that time, their prize-winning tutors, many of whom may be some of your favourite writers, have unlocked the creativity of over 100,000 people many have gone on to be published authors and career writers themselves.
0: But actually, it's not about that. Writing with Arvon is about finding a supportive community of fellow writers, making like-minded connections that last a lifetime. By signing up for a course, you don't just get an acclaimed author as your tutor. You also gain a writing group to bounce ideas off long after the course is finished.
1: So whether it's a cosy stay at one of their writing houses in Devon, West Yorkshire or Sleepy Shropshire, or a course you can do from the comfort of your sofa, Arvon works around your creative life.
0: Visit arvon.org slash courses, that's A-R-V-O-N org slash courses, to learn more and give yourself the gift of writing. Hello, and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak with the novelist, Joe Nesbo.
1: We spoke to Joe about writing his first book, The Bat, in five weeks while already established as a musician, about his anti-hero, Harry Hole, and about his latest novel, The Night House.
0: It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Joe, to Always Take Notes. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Could we start with The Night House, the story of a teenage boy called Richard who's sent to live with his aunt and uncle in the wake of his parents' death, and then when youngsters start going missing, he's put on the hook for it. Where did the idea come from?
2: I'm not sure. I I never know where my ideas come from. They seem to pop up at... Around five o'clock in the morning, uh, when I wake up and I'm, you know, in that state, half between sleeping and uh, and, and awake, it's like the the uh, the guard is down. I I uh, my critical sense doesn't work, so it means that all kinds of crazy and really bad ideas are let through. So I probably developed the the idea in bed that that is probably the best thing about being a writer that you can, you know, stay in bed and call it work.
1: And could you tell us a little bit about how you go about constructing plot? So a a question that we put to to all novelists on the show is whether they're, in the the vocabulary that we we often use, a a plotter or a plunger. So whether they're someone who has worked everything out in in advance or whether they just kind of dive in and, and follow your nose. And we saw this quite interesting comment that you'd made saying that, I am the captain on the ship. I like the feeling when writing chapter 1 that I can tell my readers, come sit closer, listen carefully. I have this great story to tell you and I know exactly where we're going. What is your your process in in that respect? Well,
2: f- first of all, I'm I don't really have a method. It's not like when I come up with the idea for a story, I it's not like, you know, I have any system for how to go about it really. But there is well, there is one basic rule. I do write synopsises, uh, so I'm probably in the category of of a plotter. Then I do like to really build the story bottom up. Meaning, what is the basic idea? What is the bottom that the, the that could be the, actually that could be the title of a novel. It could be a character. It could be a, an idea for like the perfect murder or or just a scene that I find that it is. Double or triple layered in a way that there's a subtext to a certain scene that I so I know that key scene is going to be in the novel. Stanley Kubrick, I think he he worked in that way that he had like seven s- key scenes that he wanted in his movie and then he wrote the script trying to 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 fit the pieces together the scenes together and and sometimes I will work like that too but it all comes down to it being a story with a logic to it and with a gravity to it. On the other hand, it's created using gut feeling uh, more than, you know, the plotting brain. So uh, I work a bit like comedians, I think. I I once asked a comedian who is known for being very analytic about his jokes. And uh, he said, yeah, you, you can be analytical. And you, in, in my case, you need to be. But if it doesn't make bubbles in your stomach, as he put it, it isn't a good joke. And I think it's the same with me. If it, if it doesn't, you know, um, cause me being curious about something or scared about something or steer some emotion, it really doesn't work. It doesn't matter how good the plot is.
0: And do you find that in the writing you're still able to feel that sense of suspense and anticipation, even though you know what's going to happen?
2: I go through various phases. There's the first phase when you come up with the idea. And that is much like when writing songs. When you have rehearsed the song, gone through uh, the song, the first basic idea 30, 40 times, you kind of lose the sense of what music or the riff was about. So you had to kind of remember and trust the feeling you had the first time you heard it. And it's the same with the idea for a book. You have to sort of be able to either return to that feeling or trust that um, your gut feeling was right the first time.
1: And then with The Nighthouse, with the new novel, what was it about a kind of coming-of-age story that interested you.
2: I think that it's um, when you look at the t- tradition of, of horror stories I like to stay within the boundaries of tra- tradition whether it's the uh, the crime novel or uh, pop songs or in this case horror stories uh, the tradition seems to be that there are young people involved. I don't know why. Maybe the innocence of young people the capacity for, for being scared that seems to slightly diminish with with age. It's something about, thinking back in in my youth, I was probably more scared then than I, than I am now. But it's also, of course, the innocence. I mean, the tradition of the crime story, American horror movies, is that um, if, you, if you have had sex before marriage, you are going to get killed. So it is, of course, that rule too, that sort of innocence that virginity is rewarded in the American horror story I don't know if that is true in this story but it's it's. I have all those rules in the back of my head and I and I love those I love pop songs stupid three and a half minute pop songs old pop songs and old horror movies you know I think that if you look at the TV series like Stranger Things they are doing the same thing they are using the cliches of the, of, of the horror stories and um, making it fun. And that's probably what I'm doing in the Night House. also. It's, it's scary, but it's also fun, hopefully.
0: And how do you develop characters, perhaps using the example of Richard? Is, is that something that comes to you at 5am as well?
2: Well, developing characters, I find that I have to make them walk and talk. I can plan a character and and uh, like in theory but I find that it's when I start writing dialogue that is when they really come to life and that's when I start understanding them so actually when I when I write synopsis I I learned by experience to to put in pieces of of dialogue because if I don't they may surprise me they may may not behave the way I have planned them to so, um, characters are developed gradually throughout the writing. Of course, I do have, in order uh, for them to do what I have planned them to do, they have to obey me at a, at a certain level. But yeah, I think the sort of the, 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 the detailed personality only comes to life
1: through writing. So we just had um, a really fascinating conversation off air before we started with Joe about uh, some Norwegian pronunciation. So I go into this next question with a little bit of, of trepidation. But could you tell us um, about whether the, your process with your standalone novels is different to with the, I'll give first the English and then I'll try the Norwegian. So with the, the Harry Hole novels. And then I think in Norwegian, do, do correct me here, it should be Harry Huller. But is that, is that process, talk us about the, the distinction between the series and the standalone. It's not really that different. I am mainly, I I mainly
2: see myself as a storyteller, and I just happen to, you know, uh, tell some of my stories within the genre of the of crime fiction, or the, you know, mix between the 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 hard boiled American detective stories from the fifties and and sixties, and the more m- modern Scandinavian crime novel. That is, you know, that is the genre. And like I said, I. To, to me, the boundaries of genres are more inspiring and it's, I love to try to be creative within, and it helps me being creative to have that, those boundaries. And so when I go to a standalone story, like a thriller, like Headhunters, there's also tradition that I can use there. And I also find rules by which to play the game. Uh, when writing children's books, um, there are also rules and, 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 and boundaries that that help me. The difference is probably more that writing a Harry Hall novel, it's a big plot. It's a gallery of, of so many characters. So it feels more like conducting a symphony orchestra while writing, for example, a children's book. It's more about improvising, uh, it's more like playing a gig, four-piece band, and improvising more. But it's not like one is easier or harder than the other. It's just slightly different. And by the end of the day, you have to have a story there. You have to do something that, is, that will make you and hopefully your readers curious.
0: When it comes to crime fiction, what are some of the rules in particular that you find helpful to, to play with or work within?
2: Well, I think for me, in the Harry Hole series, it's mainly the who's done it stories. And then it's about manipulating your, your, your readers. You have that license to um, mislead your readers, but being fair. That is like, when looking back, I gave you all the clues. So, uh, hopefully. So that when you get the solution, hopefully you're not going, what? But you're going, oh yes, of course. After having thought about it for a couple of seconds, and and in that respect, I I work a bit like uh, comedians. I think I I, I asked um, a comedian what is what do you mean by timing, and he said that uh, people think that um, the the punchline uh, has to come as a surprise to the to the audience, but it's the other way around. Um, you give them what they half expect, they just haven't realized yet. So you give them the punchline, the obvious punchline, a fraction of a second before they come to that same conclusion. So they laugh because they they understand. They They don't laugh because they are surprised. Chaos is not funny. And chaos is not satisfying in a crime novel either. It's a satisfying thing is to, you know, Feeling intelligent, feeling that, yeah, of course, I would have realized that if you'd just given me a little more time.
1: Could we roll back now to to earlier in your life and, and how your writing career came about? And you had a, a varied route to this. You played football at a high level. You've been a musician. You've worked in finance. And then we understand that the first Harry Hole novel was, was commissioned originally as a, as a kind of tour memoir for your, your career as a musician. Could you just take us back to you know how this all began for you? <laughs>
2: yeah i was like you said i i worked as a financial analyst and a um and at the same time i i played with my band and we had a sort of a sudden success with an album and so i i ended up playing with my band more than a hundred gigs a year and but but keeping my day job it was more or less impossible i was at the end of that year i was I was more or less burnt out, so I said to my, my boss at the brokerage firm that I had to have, have a long vacation. So I took six months off, and I, I went to Australia with a friend of mine, and he was only there for two weeks, so he had to go back. So I figured I had to do something when he was gone. And I had been asked by a girl who worked at a, at a publishing house who I knew from university, and she had asked me to write something about the band. And I said, I I won't do that. But since since you ask you, maybe I'll write something else for you. And I knew I wanted to, to write a novel. Uh, I didn't know I wanted to write a crime novel. But I had only a few weeks in which to write something for the publishing house. So I figured out, okay, I'll write something where I know the head and the tail of the animal. And that's a crime novel. And because I had seen so many of my friends who wanted to be novelists you know trying to write the the big european novel at their first attempt and were never able to finish that so in five weeks time i wrote uh, well i actually wrote the first novel of uh, in the harry hole series having no idea it was going to get published for me i thought of it more as a test piece that hopefully they liked it and they would invite me to to write something else for them but when I got back and I sent them the first version, after a few weeks, they, they phoned me and said that they wanted to, to publish it. Uh, and I was I was a bit shocked because I I didn't think... It, I I not put enough work into it, so I said, you know, can I have it back and rewrite it? And they said, no, well, we're in a bit of a hurry. We are going to publish it this fall. So I got it back and I reworked it a little bit, but it ended up being... The first novel in the series, the Batman
0: I read as well that you weren't that interested in crime fiction as a child, so what made you sure that you could that you could pull it off?
2: Yeah, well, it depends on what you define as a crime novel to me mark twain's Tom Sawyer is a murder mystery so in 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 that respect i was I was interested in suspense and I was interested in great characters and you know, even as a child, I, uh, I can remember my mother told me that she got a phone from a worried teacher because we had had an essay in, in, in school. I think the title was A Nice Day in the Woods, and everybody would put in, you know, short stories about that. Mine was like 20 pages long, and it was A Nice Day in the Woods, only in my story nobody came back alive. And So so I probably had it in me from a young age. But as a reader, I was, especially in my teens, my late teens, I got interested in, you know, the classics. I started writing, reading, you know, Hemingway, Charles Bukowski, Jack Kerouac. So I wasn't really into any of the crime writers. I wasn't a big fan of Raymond Chandler and, and Dashiell Hammett, really. And until I wasn't into crime novels until I found Jim Thompson. And Jim Thompson wrote in the 50s and the 60s and he these really dark stories, The Killer Inside Me and Population 1280. That was to me, you know, The American Psycho, written 30 years before Bret Easton Ellis did so. And so, so yeah, Jim Thompson, he, he inspired me too. And also later, graphic novelist Frank Miller with his uh, Sin City stories also inspired me.
1: Could we talk about Harry as a as a character now? We recently had Lee Child on the show, and we're talking to him about Jack Reacher, and, and he was saying, you know, that for him, Reacher is a kind of solid construction. Like he doesn't have a an arc, he doesn't have a, you know, you know what he's gonna do. He will prevail and he will he will win, and it's not about kind of journey or growth. And you've described Harry as a as a genuine anti-hero, saying that he has a, a strong moral conviction, but you are interested in moral ambiguity. And we wonder kind of where that came from, and, and particularly this thing about finding out about your father's experiences in the Second World War. Could you tell us about that? And just just also, I was, I'm fascinated with the language thing, if you could also tell us our listeners correctly how how his name would be pronounced as a Norwegian, that would be brilliant.
2: Yeah, well, in in Norwegian, his name is Hari Hule. Hole being a, a common Norwegian name, but in the first novel, he's traveling to, to Australia. So I, I gave him that name to have the sort of, you know, slightly embarrassing confusion when he's coming to, to Australia, how to pronounce his name. Well, unlike uh, some characters in, in, in series, where the character is, you know, always sort of back to status quo at the start of a new book, Harry is is going through... I mean, he's evolving both as a person and physically. He's getting older. He's getting injured. So in many ways, the series of Harry Hole is the story, the tragedy of a of a character character uh, slowly falling apart, and I think that is his his moral dilemmas is what what is driving the story. In the first two novels. He was like the camera eye. But from the third novel, he moved in front of the camera. So Harry's life and his own moral choices became, you know, the issues center stage. And that's what I find interesting, you know, in, in, in writing these kind of stories set in the crime fiction tradition, you know, moral dilemmas that we all can relate to. And having the reader, you know making Harry's choices for him, rooting for one choice, Uh, Harry probably (laughs) making the other choice, uh, but uh, still uh, persuading the readers to uh, go with him whatever dark alley he is going down.
0: And how does that growth um, work in terms of being part of a series, but also each novel being able to be read on its own? How do you calibrate that? Well,
2: first of all, I... I wrote a long storyline for Harry when I wrote the third novel in the series, The Red Breast. And when I'm saying that Harry is slowly falling apart, that is true. I mean, the world around him is falling apart. But simultaneously, he's learning to bond with people. He's kind of learning to love, I guess. His experiences in life has, has been that whenever he has loved somebody, whether it's his mother, a a colleague or a girlfriend, they have been taken away from him. So he feels that his love is like a vampire's bite, but slowly is returning to humanity to be one of them, I guess.
1: Could you tell us now about your writing routine? We saw that with the bat, you you turned this around in in five weeks, and but also that you go regularly to Thailand for a few months each year. How does how does your routine work, and is it consistent or does it vary between the books?
2: It it both varies and 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 is the same. I don't have any routines really. I'm when I started writing, I felt so privileged because I had the time to write. So I always felt when sitting down typing that it was you know, it was my time off. And I'm I'm sort of clinging to that illusion that writing is something I get to do when I have nothing else to do. And so my life is not centered around writing. It's actually more centered around rock climbing, which I do a lot and which is why I started going to Thailand to this beautiful peninsula for where they have rock climbing. Um and, and playing with my band. And so when I have time off, I sit down with my laptop and I write. And it's not something I have to force myself to do. I'm, I'm lucky in the way that I love writing, um, and I would probably, um, I would probably write even if I wasn't published. I think um, it's just uh, I just love the, the process of developing stories into novels or short stories or lyrics for a song.
0: Do the words come easily when you're writing? And in particular, when you're writing sort of violent scenes, how do you find that experience? We interviewed also Irvin Welsh on the show, who says he sometimes is horrified thinking about his mother or his partner reading <laughs> reading his work and thinking, what on earth is this? Is that something that you also share?
2: Yeah. Well, my, my mother made that much easier for me. I mean, my, my, my father, he passed away before I wrote my first novel and my mother who is a librarian and 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 a great reader she told me you know after my first novel she had phoned her sister who had read the book and my mother asked her you know is it good and mom said yeah it's good you can read it yeah but is it sex in it yeah there's some sex oh then i can't read it i can't read my son writing about sex (laughs) <laughs> and, she, uh, and she told me that I want a book, I want it in my shelf, but I won't read it and i said that's that's fine, actually, that's perfect that's that I don't have to think about you you
1: reading this. Could you tell us about your thoughts on the crime genre in particular, and with other writers operating in this space in English or initially English language writers we've had on the show, I'm thinking of some people like val McDermott, they talked a lot about how the way that crime writing at least in Britain, is, is perceived has changed a lot over the past two decades. That it's seen as a as a kind of more respectable genre. That it's you know less of that. There's less stigma attached to it. How has that functioned for you in in Scandinavia, but also more broadly? Is the the sort of social position of crime writing different in the Nordic countries? I think maybe it was a bit
2: different early on. I mean, back in the seventies, there were two. Swedish writers sure Volenwalder used the crime novel for, for for their well partly for their uh, political agenda they were left-wing writers but but more importantly they were really good writers so they sort of brought crime novel from the kiosks into the series bookstores and uh, uh, they started this tradition of uh, good talented writers using the crime novel to, you know, criticize society. And um, it made a lot of talented writers using the crime genre. Now, there there was in the 80s and 90s, probably just as many bad crime novels produced in Scandinavia as anywhere else. But there were just so many writers using the crime genre. So there were bound to be some some really good writers. and. If you look at other Scandinavian writers like Henning Mankell and probably more famously Steve Larsson, they would use a crime novel also to criticize society. So it was, um, I wouldn't say uh, that crime novel is like a highbrow uh, novel in, uh, in Scandinavia, but what you see is that many of the more literary writers, they would will at one time or another have a go at the crime novel. So it's not considered low bro or... Well, I mean, it is It is low. You, you definitely have low bro crime novels in Scandinavia also, but it doesn't need to be.
0: It seems like the community of crime writers is really supportive of each other. And it seems to be that people sort of blurb and um, promote each other's work. Um, what's your experience of, of that being like?
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that, you know, there is not really, there is, I guess, some sort of competition, but I think that crime writers in general, or writers in general, we are, uh, our competitors are, are more, you know, TV and movies, uh, uh, other kinds of entertainment than, uh, than, than novels. I think it's, whenever you have a blockbuster novel, it's helpful for, for, for any writer because it makes people read. And um, that is not something you can take for granted nowadays.
0: We are thrilled to announce the publication of Always Take Notes, advice from some of the world's greatest writers. The book, edited by the two of us, features contributions from almost 100 past guests on the podcast. It's a distillation of the wit and wisdom we've heard over the past six years.
1: The book offers, we think, frank and entertaining guidance on writing in particular and living a creative life in general. It answers questions such as, where do the best ideas come from? How do you stay motivated? What does it take to become a published author? And how do you actually make money from your writing?
0: Published by Ithaca Press, always take notes, advice from some of the world's greatest writers is available now in all good bookshops. We hope you enjoy reading it.
1: Could you tell us about your children's books and how that project came about and then why you've you've decided to have these parallel tracks of of writing for children as well as writing adult fiction
2: yeah well i think you can probably guess how i came about writing children's books i had a daughter <laughs> so i had to write something for her well i i did tell her stories from a young age actually i was more or less her jukebox she instead of putting coins on uh, on the jukebox she would give me you know elements that she wanted in the in the story. Like, I want a princess, a little boy, a crazy professor, and a dinosaur, and a potato in the story. Uh, and then I had to come up with something, imp- improvise there and then. And one summer I, I came up with a story about Dr. Proctor, uh, a crazy inventor, who uh, invented the fart powder, very powerful one. And, uh, and uh, it became a hilarious story when I told her, and I realized that you know this is probably it could be a funny children's book and so it became the start of a series of, of of five books about dr proctor
0: i'd also read the one about the princess the potato the dinosaur and the other elements <laughs> how do you as you were writing that series how did you sort of test it obviously you had your daughter but how did you sort of write for that different audience was it just that you were steeped in in what children found funny or were you also writing to amuse yourself <sighs>
2: I, I I wrote actually what I found funny, and I, and I consciously didn't, you know, stupid down the the language. I guess the language is slightly challenging for children, so I I, I think I wanted to write on the when I promoted the book a book for smart smart children, <laughs> which would, which would certainly be a good tagline i guess but but it's like and and the reason why i did that is that remembering from my childhood listening to the grown-ups telling stories and um i i didn't understand everything in the stories but i kind of understand that it was supposed to be funny and i would laugh and find it entertaining just for the feeling of it being funny somehow without me really understanding why it was funny and i I think the Dr. Proctor books, they are a little bit the same. They are not meant, they are not stories from an adult to another adult, but still there is an element of trying to make the adults smile and laugh as well.
1: It's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it's interacted with people's writing lives. So be as, as open or as, as guarded as you're comfortable with. But how has the, the financial element of your, your writing career worked? And when was it clear to you that, this was something that you know was going to be a, a profitable endeavor for you to do
2: well, I guess for me it was a bit different than for most writers because I had I had a job as a like I said as a financial analyst and an and option broker, so I made more money than I was worth al- already uh, in a way and um, when I decided i I don't want to work in finance i I want to be a writer. I I had for some years considered, you know, being a full-time musician. And so I had, you know, paid, paid for my apartment. I owned my own apartment and I had some money. So I figured when I decided I want to be a writer that I could, I didn't have to make money for five years. And I wanted to have that money because I knew that I'd seen so many musicians having to compromise to pay the rent Uh, starting out with a love for music and love for their idea of the project that they wanted to pursue and ending up doing stuff that they really didn't want and in the end they, they would hate being musicians so i figured okay i will not end up there so when i started writing my eyes was not at the price or at the price money it was just at Creating this story that I wanted to tell, and knowing I could return to finance if I had to, and it wasn't until I wrote my third novel I knew that I could make a, a living as a full-time writer. And actually, the third novel was so successful that I knew that I, I probably didn't have to, have to you know, write stuff to suit my. My audience in order to pay the rent, and I wouldn't have done that either way, but I think you know as a writer, I think you you probably should for me it's like opening my home and say that you know this is where I live, this is my universe, this is the music we play here, this is the food I serve, this is what you get, uh, and if it's not to your liking you're you're free to go somewhere else it's not like i I can't visit you where you live and, and, and try to give you the things I think you want. Uh, actually, I I think you can tell if writers are trying to do that. So all you can do is to write stuff that interests you, things you are curious about. And if you're lucky, there's a lot of people who are interested in the same things. And if not, well, then you have to live off your savings. But at least you're you're happy doing what you're doing.
0: You mentioned the third book. Was that when things sort of really exploded or had the first two also been successful enough that you just had the courage of your conviction by then?
2: Well, the first book was uh, received good reviews and also a couple of prestigious prizes, but it didn't sell that much. And then with my second novel, which is probably a novel I was least happy with, it's, it, it sold more. And then it was the third novel that was The Red Breast, that was both a success with the critics and, and the audience. Um, that was when I, I knew that, OK, it I'm, I'm, seems like
1: I'm going to do this for a long, long time. Another um, point that we've raised and often had really interesting conversations with with authors who've sold huge numbers of books is what has been the reaction of, of sort of so-called literary novelists or, you know, and even whether they think there's a there's a divide between these these two kinds of fiction. We've heard often about kind of complicated kind of two-way envy that goes between best-selling writers and very highbrow writers, but also about quite productive interactions between them. How, what, what has been your experience of that? Has there been envy or, you know, has it been a, a sort of easier thing to deal with?
2: I don't really socialize that much with writers. I, I'm, you know, I, sp- I spend time with the friends I had when I was young and when I was a student, and none of them are writers. So I only meet other writers, you know, at 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 some festivals, and I don't go much to festivals either. And 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 you know, writers' events. Um, I'm probably lucky that there's a few literary writers, like peterson for example that is uh giving me praise you know for my writing so i haven't really noticed but but well i i do think that uh, there is this there is a slight irritation that crime writers in general sell so many books and that there are so many bad books that become bestsellers and i can to a certain extent i i can understand and i share the irritation to a certain extent on the other hand, from time to time, you see other kind of writers, literary writers like uh, Carlo Knausgaard, for example, that is, had this, you know, really ambitious, experimental series of books writing just about his own life that became an instant bestseller, in you Norway, topping all the lists. And that is so, you know, inspiring and reassuring as a writer that if it's good enough, you can top the bestseller lists writing in any genre.
0: I read somewhere that you sell a book every 23 seconds. Is that
2: true? Every, every, I think now it's down to every 22nd seconds,
0: actually. <laughs> Shaving a second off every year. Oh,
2: no, I, 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 I have no, I have no idea. <laughs> um, I saw the, they used that in UK uh, some years back,
1: yeah. And um, wh- where are your biggest markets? Like, where does your, your fiction do best?
2: Well, it's Norway. First of all, and and then it's rest of the rest of Europe actually, including UK. Uh, and um, yeah,
0: there's been a lot of interest in your work from Hollywood, including an adaptation of the Snowman. You're not very involved in the in those projects. Why is it that you wanted to keep a bit of of distance from them?
2: Well, I've written a novel. The novel is there. Um, I don't see. And for me, a movie doesn't need to be a version of the, of the book. I see my book more as hopefully useful input for um, talented uh, directors to to make their own story. And so, uh, like with um, Snowman, which didn't turn out the way uh, any of us hoped, it was at the start, but the, the the director, Thomas Alfredson, a uh, very talented uh, director, he asked me, you know, is... Is it okay if I tell my story? And I told him that yeah, I I want you to tell your story. The novel is there. I've done my job. Uh, now you, if you can use it for um, to make a good movie, um, you're free to do whatever you want. And that's that is the way I see. It. The movie is such a different medium, and there is there is nothing holy about uh, the stuff in my my novels. It, 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 I'm just trying to write good stories and i hope directors are trying to create good stories also
1: i was very interested to see your interest in in rock climbing it's something that that's important to me as well and i'm writing a book about ski mountaineering and stuff but could you talk a bit about you know the the relationship between your climbing and your writing and i was interested in seeing a video about you trying to do it in 8a that you you'd actually never done a multi-pitch route that it was you were you were kind of devoted to to single pitch climbing tell us about how you know how that came about and and if there is a, a relationship between your your climbing career and your writing career
2: i think there is no connection at all between uh between my writing and my rock climbing <laughs> it's like uh when the people are trying to 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 make metaphors uh about football and uh and life uh i it, to me, that all, always sounds stupid. First of all, football is about football, and rock climbing for me is—it's great because it's—it's it's a break from from everything else. It's a break from writing, from playing, from working, from uh, your love life and your frustrations. And uh, I'm slightly scared of heights, so when I climb, I can't think about anything else but the next move, and the wall. I I started climbing quite late in life. And it wasn't until I was 50 years old that I really got seriously involved with, with rock climbing. I do mainly sports climbing, meaning I and it's like the 100 meters sprint of rock climbing. So it's hard climbs, steep climbs, maybe 30 meters. And then you lower down and you can have your lunch safely on the ground, you know, and and go home for dinner. That's the way. That's a climbing I prefer. But at some years ago, I um, wanted to write about climbing, and I wanted to write about Lynn Hill. She was the first climber to climb the Nose in Yosemite, and so I I decided in order to get inside her head, you know, you know, putting up a project like that that seemed almost impossible. I wanted to do the same for myself. So I decided I wanted to do everything I could to train for two years to climb a route of the grade 8A, which when I was 19 years old that was the hardest route climbed in the world. Now climbing has developed a lot since then. People train differently. You have indoor gyms where you can train. So nowadays it's it's not a miracle when somebody climb an 8A. But for me, since I had started climbing so late, that was a big, big, big challenge. So um, I put two years into that. And and I mean, I I, I trained every day. I ate and slept and I had a a trainer who had trained the national Norwegian team who happened to be a friend of mine. So we worked really hard while I was writing about climbing and why we climb. And why we try to, you know, achieve a goal like that, that has no meaning to anybody else but yourself. And to me, that was a way back to my childhood, to to playing, to just, you know, because climbing like that is like a bunch of kids pointing to, to the top of the tree, saying, let's see if anybody can climb to the top of that tree. So it was back to that playfulness. After two years, I still haven't achieved my goal, but I was so close that I decided to give it another year. And then earlier this year, I, I finally climbed my 8-day my project. Yeah, you're right. I haven't, I haven't climbed multi-pitches until two weeks ago, actually, in Norway. I was, I talked to one of the legends of Norwegian climbing and climbing in general, Ralph Heybach. Who was the first norwegian to be on the top of uh, mount everest and he's 86 years old now and he had the first ascent of a famous route in six pitch route in in norway so i said you know are you ready to go and reclimb that route and he was and it was it was really wonderful experience to climb with this legend and it's just it's slab so it's not that physically hard, but it's mentally, it's, 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 it's just crazy. And to see him like a ballet dancer, 86 years old, dancing up that route, it was just just amazing. So yes, we did our six pitch routes and I'm so happy to have done that because there was trad climbing, slab, and I'm never, ever going to do it again.
0: That sounds fair enough. As someone who's also quite scared of heights. I will not be going up any <laughs> any mountains we're coming towards the end of our time so I wanted to ask about the Harry Hall Foundation when did you set it up and and what made you want to do it
2: I think from from an early age I I spent all my money traveling from when I was 17 years old I would you know save money throughout the year so I could go traveling so I at the age of twenty something i had seen most of europe and some other parts of the world also and what i had learned from my travels was that it wasn't like it wasn't the other countries that were exotic it was norway that was exotic norway was the different country it was a country where when you are born you are you are safe you are you know you can live a life without starving you will have free education. You have all the all the things you need to have a good life. And so um, when I earned more money than I needed at a, the at a point, I decided that I didn't need or even want a yacht or something, but uh, that I could hopefully uh, put up a foundation that would uh, contribute to the fight against illiteracy in third world countries. And we've been doing that now for... Fifteen years, the money is from royalties from from the books I've written. So by now we have, I think, uh, what are we, 15, 16 million euros, and it's being used to educate young people. For the next five years, years it will be mainly girls in African countries.
1: I wanted to ask about your your future plans for Harry Hole, and again with with Lee Child as a kind of interesting point of comparison, who we spoke to recently, who's handed the Jack Reacher franchise over his brother. You've said that, you know, that is not what you're going to do. You know, he's not immortal. You're not going to try and resurrect him or, or hand him over. What are your thoughts on the, the correct, or for you, the best way to, to bring a series like that to a conclusion?
2: For me, it was, like I said, uh, Harry is uh, evolving, developing as a character. So it's a sort of a logic end to that story and i of course i won't reveal how it's going to to end but for me it would be a you know i would definitely not have anyone trying to resurrect harry or or just because it's a you know, profitable uh, trademark name. So like we've seen happen with the uh, Stig Larsson books in, in, in Sweden, I think that is, that is really sad. And I, I will make sure that that is not going to happen with, with my book. On the other hand, you could have, you know, if you want to have a character, if you want that character to have a life after you have passed away yourself, that's, that's perfectly okay. If that is your intention, then do that.
0: And as a final question, are there any projects that you hope to work on in the in the near future, either within the Harry Hole series or children's books or screenplays or anything else?
2: Well, actually, right now I'm working on uh, The Night House, on a script for um, for a movie for uh, The Night House. So we will see how that goes.
1: And as a, a final question from me, just a quick one. Could you tell the, the listeners how your name should be pronounced in Norwegian? You've been very tolerant with us butchering these things, but just, it'd be great to end on that.
2: In, in, in Norway, they call me Jo
1: Nesbo. That's very good. Thank you very much indeed, and wishing you all the best. Thank you. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Joe Nesbo. His website is jonesbo.com and The Night House is published by Harvel Secker. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway on the um, interview with Joe?
0: I thought Joe was a great guest. He was very lively and funny. Um, it always surprises me the, uh, the similes or metaphors that, that writers draw about writing. And uh, in his case, the similarities between writing and comedy and the, uh, the importance of expected surprise. Um, I also thought the episode was an interesting contrast with the child, particularly on the Hollywood point and that Joe is not very involved and um Lee very much is. Um and also it was interesting that Joe is a rare plotter for sort of mystery, horror, thriller writers. They're often people that just like to jump in and see what happens to try and sustain that sense of adrenaline, but in his case, uh, that's a slightly different method. So um it was good to hear about his process. How about you?
1: I thought he was very tolerant at my slightly cringy attempts to pin down an authentic uh, Norwegian pronunciation of his name. I thought it was very interesting about to hear from someone who'd achieved a kind of level of, if not, you know, international, but you know, reasonable national success in in one medium of music and then moving out into into another world and then, you know, also moving internationally. And I'm not sure we, we haven't had that many um, you know, non English language native speaker writers on the show. I'm not sure we've had any actually. So it was a, a kind of interesting um point in that way and i was also um extremely impressed by his level of sport climbing prowess i think he told us that he would climbed a, a something in the eighth in the eighth grade which was uh, very impressive and again the, the perennial point i make about you know it's just interesting to peel back what massive um international literary success is like from the inside out so a really good addition to our catalogue um anyway rachel what have you been up to and what has your cultural diet been
0: so uh after my cuteness piece i've i'm moving on to something completely different in tone um i'm going to do something about the magdalene laundries in ireland um and i also have various book reviews um, and think, I think I signed up to about three in March. So I'm gonna have to get reading. So yes, that's it's uh, busy, but that's good. And um, in terms of things I've been reading, I've just started uh, the third sort of iteration, because it's not full seasons, but the third bit of Lupin on Netflix. And I've also just started reading *The Green Dot*, a novel by Madeline Gray. So,
1: across all formats and nationalities of content, Rachel.
0: <laughs> trying, I'm trying, but uh, it's too soon for both of those to to report back. So I will, I'll let you know in the next instalment what I made of them. Um, what have you been up to and uh, consuming?
1: Um, I've come back to the UK for for two weeks, um, and I've basically just. Uh, slept for two days i was so tired um but it's it's nice to be back um in terms of cultural stuff i had this i don't know if i mentioned this in the previous episode i think it was about to come out but i i had a long read in the guardian and my profile of a um swiss extreme skier called jeremy heights that came out that i was really pleased with um it got a really good response it was selected um picked by long reads picked by the sunday long read um bounced around a lot on social media and it was also just a very pleasant uh, experience i was working with um an american editor who i'll name check happily a guy called bobby baird who was um extremely pro to work with and it just all came came together very well and a few you know interesting things that come my way on the back of it so that's been good um i um i finished reading my uh biography of a french extreme skier called Silver Soda, and i'm now reading a book called staying alive in avalanche terrain which is possibly the most sort of on the nose title that i've ever read so i'm basically having to just read a lot of stuff related to my book and i did find today i got back and you know suddenly there were like novels on my bookshelf that i really wanted to get into at the moment i just don't really have time for non-reading related to that which is a bit of a grind um i also watched the next episode of of Masters of the Air, which is being drip-fed out slowly, and I don't know yet whether they have boldly killed the central character. I felt maybe they had, but maybe they hadn't. Uh, so, which actor is that? Uh, the one who was in Elvis,
0: Austin Butler. Yeah, he
1: has he has failed to return, but I suspected there might be some like. Ah, uh, now we cut to like a field in occupied Belgium, and he's sort of wiping the mud off his forehead, and you know there he's there he's doing so. Um, yeah, I don't know whether it was a, a sort of both but I felt I felt the previous episode actually got got a little bit a little bit lost. But I could you know speak for fifty minutes about World War II drama series, so I think I'm going to restrain myself on that. Um, anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aker,
0: and me, Rachel Lloyd.
1: Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser, and our graphic design is by James Edgar.
0: If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram at Always Take Notes. We're on twitter at take notes always if you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on patreon we're on there under always take notes and if you'd like to leave a review on itunes or get in touch with us via our website please do
1: many thanks goodbye